William Collins presents Bloody Brilliant Women with me, Cathy Newman. This is a history of our times. This is a history of the pioneering women who defied the odds to transform modern Britain. This is a history of women who achieved remarkable things but have faded into oblivion. Throughout this series, you'll be hearing some selected extracts from my audiobook, Bloody Brilliant Women, The Pioneers, Revolutionaries and Geniuses Your History Teacher Forgot to Mention, which tells the stories of incredible women from the 1880s to the modern day. In this episode, we'll meet Jane Drew, a visionary architect of the mid-20th century, and the better-known novelists Iris Murdoch, Agatha Christie and Muriel Spark. Through the stories of their professional success, we'll learn about the creation and implementation of the Festival of Britain, the ways in which women had to push the boundaries to get ahead, and the fabulous fees of flourishing female novelists. Part 1 On the 4th of May 1951, in a flurry of ceremonial excess, a special service at St Paul's, a 41-gun salute and some weird business involving the Lord Mayor of London and a sword, an ailing King George VI declared the Festival of Britain open. Conceived several years earlier at the height of austerity, the festival was supposed to boost national morale and showcase British talent – much as Prince Albert's Great Exhibition had a hundred years earlier. It is a celebration in which the whole of Britain will be able to take part and in which the whole nation will itself be on show, promised a brochure published by the Welsh Committee of the Festival of Britain office, adding unconvincingly, there has never been anything like it before. Unlike the Great Exhibition, which was contained within the Crystal Palace in Hyde Park, the Festival of Britain played itself out in a variety of venues across the country. The focus, however, was a 27-acre site on London's South Bank, where visitors could find, among much else, the Royal Festival Hall, designed by two men, the Dome of Discovery, designed by a man, and Skylon, a slender, cigar-shaped sculpture, designed by three men, which seemed to float above the ground. In the Homes and Gardens Pavilion, designed by four men, you could see two rooms themed around the idea of space-saving, which featured smart modern furniture by Robin Day, a man, and colourful abstract pattern textiles by Hurrah, a woman, his wife, Lucienne. As it happened, one of Lucienne's textile designs, Calyx, a quiet riot of Miro-esque cup-shaped petals, soon became a motif for this bright new post-war society. Dark, heavy Victorian furniture had no place in 1950s Britain, nor the mean, spindly utility furniture of the previous decade. Yet these new designs had to feel immediate and accessible, not like something from a science fiction novel. As Lucien Day remembered decades later, Robin wanted something that the ordinary man or woman in the street could buy. I took the fabric to heels to be made, where I had a contact. They said, we shan't sell any of this. But they did. It was instantly a great success. On the whole, there was huge excitement in the run-up to the festival. But not everyone was impressed. What a muddle! Hideous buildings in a sea of mud, wrote Gladys Langford, a middle-aged schoolteacher who kept a diary for mass observation and had made a special trip to the embankment to check on developments. Jane Drew, one of Britain's few high-profile female architects and one of the small number of women involved in the festival's conception, 
thought the 1940s South Bank really looked like a piece of Dickens. The buildings chosen to fill this wasteland were, with the exception of the Royal Festival Hall, temporary structures thrown up quickly and cheaply using modern materials like concrete, steel and aluminium. They could be demolished quickly too, which would come in handy the following year when the festival was dismantled by a newly re-elected Winston Churchill. When the invitation came to participate in the festival, Edwin Maxwell Fry, Jane Drew's husband and fellow partner in their architectural practice, was sceptical. He disliked the idea which he thought the festival promoted, that architecture was a passing distraction rather than central to the way people inhabited and experienced the built world. Drew disagreed. So while Fry worked abroad, Drew stayed in London and finessed the designs, relishing the opportunity to create forward-looking, abrasive work she wouldn't have been able to get away with in any other context. She later described the festival as like lifting the lid off a pressure cooker. It was the first time since the war that people were asked to be inventive, and they responded. Indeed, it was almost the first time since the war that Britons had been confronted with design that wasn't boringly utilitarian. The ceramic artist Clarice Cliff, whose hyper-colourful Art Deco bizarre range of pottery had been such a hit in the 1920s and 1930s, had had to stop her design work as only plain white pottery was permitted by wartime regulations. Dior's new look, unveiled in Paris in 1947, wasn't allowed in Britain until 1949 because its full skirts required decadent amounts of the wrong sort of fabrics, not to mention corsetry, which, under rationing, could only be obtained with a doctor's note. An exception was made for Princess Margaret, who had a secret Dior fitting at the British Embassy in Paris in 1947. Drew and her colleagues were assigned a section at the north end of the festival site. Included in this was the marine-themed Harbour Bar, whose canvas awnings would be much admired, and the Riverside Restaurant, for which Drew fashioned a distinctive undulating cork and aluminium roof, prefabricated by a Bristol aircraft manufacturer for hasty on-site assembly. Drew also designed the public entrance from Waterloo Bridge and its adjacent observation tower, commissioning a rotating sculpture from Barbara Hepworth to stand sentry. Drew is one of those women, we'll meet several of them in this chapter, who defies the docile, obedient, buttoned-up stereotype of the 1950s woman to such a degree that you begin to wonder whether that image bears any relationship at all to reality. For many women, the 1950s, especially the first half, played out as an extension of the 1940s. But for others, opportunity knocked. In 1950, the journalist Catherine Whitehorn arrived in London from Cambridge, where she'd been a student, to find paralysing fogs that left yellow greasiness over everything. But as she observes in her memoir, Selective Memory, it wasn't depressing. There's been a tendency to look on the 50s as simply a damp patch between the battleground of the 40s and the fairground of the 60s, yet it was anything but. It's true there were still austerities, but we were used to them, and as they gradually ebbed away, we had the heady sense that everything was getting better. Jane Drew was 40 in 1951, but would have struck most observers as part of the younger generation, one whose senses had been sharpened rather than blunted by the experience of war. She was born in the London suburb of Thornton Heath into a wealthy middle-class family. Her father made surgical instruments, her mother was a schoolteacher. As a child, Drew liked building things out of bits of wood and bricks, a tiny model of the Acropolis or a sandcastle of sophisticated intricacy. Her best friends at school were the future liberal politician and feminist campaigner Nancy Sear and the future actor Peggy Ashcroft. 
Drew and Ashcroft made a pact that whatever the pair did in life, if they married, they would always use their own names rather than their husbands. When once at a lecture Drew was introduced as Mrs Fry, she tugged the speaker's sleeve hard, prompting the correction, I'm sorry, Mrs Fry can't be with us tonight. Instead, Miss Jane Drew has kindly accepted to replace her. Studying at the Architectural Association in 1929, Drew was one of only a dozen or so women. She paid her own fees by teaching French in the evenings. After graduating, she had trouble finding work, as few architectural practices would appoint women. Eventually, she was taken on by the architect Joseph Hill, working on neo-Georgian pubs as well as more stylish art deco theatres and cinemas like the Odeon in Claremont Road, Surbiton. Within a few years, Drew and her first husband, James Thomas Alliston, had set up their own practice and were designing houses and hospitals. Although Drew, her sights set beyond the mundane, was increasingly fascinated by the burgeoning modern movement and its figurehead, Swiss-French architect Le Corbusier. In 1937, Drew gave birth to twins, but during the war her marriage to Alliston broke down. She went on to run her own practice in King Street in central London, initially employing only female architects, although she abandoned this policy when the number of candidates proved unworkably small. Part 2 Edwin Maxwell Fry was also newly divorced when Drew met him for the first time at the Royal Institute of British Architects, Reba. They married in 1942 and Drew joined his practice working on projects like the Rodent House at London Zoo. Much of their work involved designing housing and public buildings in Britain's colonial territories. Together they evolved a new style of what they called tropical architecture to suit the climate, culture and ecology of countries like India. After partition in 1947, they were commissioned by the Indian Prime Minister, Pandit Nehru, to design Chandigarh, the new capital of Punjab, which Nehru envisaged as radical and ultra-modern. Drew persuaded Le Corbusier to become involved. She and Fry spent the best part of three years living and working with him in Chandigarh as part of the Chandigarh Capital Project team. On a more humdrum level, Drew was fascinated by new synthetic materials like formica and enamel and how these might be used in the kitchens of the future. Acting as consultant for the British Commercial Gas Association, she gave her work a feminist gloss. Every woman agrees that household drudgery must be banished after the war and that's why I'm concentrating on kitchens. Her designs were published as Kitchen Planning, a brochure of new plans and suggestions for labour-saving kitchens in 1945 and helped promote the idea that kitchens should be integrated with rather than adjuncts to the modern household. Admittedly, they deemed the kitchen a female-only zone. One of Drew's design goals was to establish the right height for a cooker that would be comfortable for the majority of women. I think we can excuse this because the prospect of men taking any interest in food storage and preparation was at this stage pie in the sky. To succeed as a female architect, you were supposed to be modest and unassuming. Bite your tongue rather than make a fuss when, as happened to Drew, the colonial office docked your wages by £100 because of your gender. Drew was loudly intolerant of injustice and didn't mind giving offence. As a result, say the architecture critics Ian Jackson and Jessica Holland, her value as a designer is often downplayed or dismissed entirely, and Fry seen as the creative talent of the duo, when this is far from the truth. Maxwell Fry was an ideological modernist who privileged aesthetics over everything else. 
Drew was always more concerned with how a beautiful idea might work in practice. I have to confess that the jobs I've done in my life, I have always been involved in the cause of the job. It has always mattered to me tremendously that the object should be something very worthwhile. Drew was renowned for being difficult, headstrong, opinionated. Her personality seemed to either enthrall or repel those she encountered, writes Jackson. And even today, stories about her misdemeanours abound, nearly all concerned with her supposed amorous appetite and lack of ability as a designer. In fact, she had designed a village and a school in Kenya before she even met Fry, and in 1945 had established the Architect's Yearbook, a journal featuring writing by key thinkers in the field. It's surprising, or perhaps not, how many successful creative women from this era acquired reputations for being, to use a recently popularised phrase, bloody difficult women. Lucien Day didn't suffer fools gladly. The composer, Elizabeth Lutyens, was the equal of the men who dominated the classical music scene, but has been eclipsed by her reputation as a cantankerous, self-destructive alcoholic. The film producer, Betty Box, best known for the Doctor series of hit comedies starring Dirk Bogard and her director, sister-in-law, Muriel Box, had to be ruthless in the face of sniping from the likes of Michael Balkan, the head of Ealing Studios, who believed women lacked the qualities necessary to control a large film unit. Sheila Delaney's debut play, A Taste of Honey, about a fiery Salford girl, much like Delaney, who sleeps with a Nigerian sailor, gets pregnant and is then looked after by a gay art student, was first staged in 1958. The programme notes praised Delaney's fierce independence of mind, which is telling. A working-class renegade in an industry dominated by well-spoken upper-middle-class types, Delaney wrote the play aged 19, after being taken to see Terence Rattigan's variation of a theme in Manchester and deciding she could do better. She fought attempts to constrain her. She was furious when told she wasn't allowed to spend the money she made from the film rights until she was 21 and ignored the advice of her patron at London's Theatre Royal Stratford East, Joan Littlewood, that she should take time out and learn more about her craft before writing a follow-up. Her theatrical career spluttered out after the relative failure of her second play, The Lion in Love, although she had a late flowering as a screenwriter, penning the screenplay for Mike Newell's 1985 film Dance with a Stranger about Ruth Ellis, the last woman to be hanged in Britain. Female novelists seemed to have a better time of it. Finding a publisher was easy and effortless for the young Iris Murdoch, whose first novel, Under the Net, came out in 1954. Chateau's taken my novel, she noted, the only reference to the publishing process in journals that spanned 60 years. As her biographer Peter Conradi points out, her success was instantaneous. It was a similar story for Muriel Spark, whose debut The Comforters was accepted by Macmillan in 1955 and tells of a woman who hears constant typewriter clicking and comes to realise she is a character in a novel. The book was inspired by hallucinations Spark experienced after becoming addicted like many women at the time to the dieting pills Dexedrine, sold over the counter in chemists in the 1950s. Macmillan asked her how much money she wanted for the book. She suggested £100. Fine, they said, and that was that. It's worth pointing out, though, that to get this far, to the point of having written a publishable novel, Spark had had to show a brave disregard for convention, which looked to some like ruthlessness. She abandoned not only her abusive husband, but also her son in southern Rhodesia, where they had all been living in order to return to Britain. Strong-minded to a T, she instructed her publishers not to change any punctuation, even if it looked wrong, 
and to reinstate passages they had cut on the grounds of mild indecency. When asked to supply a biographical note, she sent them this. Born in Ice Cave of Southern Tyrol, year 609 BC of Centaur stock, mother descended from Venus. Muriel's spark rose from the waves, as is well known, demands fabulous fees. As far as fabulous fees were concerned, the female writer to beat was Agatha Christie. By 1950, the Queen of Crime was more successful than ever, having sold some 50 million books worldwide, even if her creative powers were arguably on the wane. Film and stage adaptations of her murder mysteries proliferated. In 1953, the play Witness for the Prosecution became one of her biggest successes, packing out theatres in both London and New York before being filmed to great acclaim by Billy Wilder. The year before, The Mousetrap had opened at London's Ambassador's Theatre. Too obvious by half was the verdict of the Daily Express. No one could have had any inkling that it would still be running over 60 years and 25,000 performances later. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bloody Brilliant Women with me, Cathy Newman. Bloody Brilliant Women, the pioneers, revolutionaries and geniuses your history teacher forgot to mention is available now in paperback from all good bookstores and as an audiobook and ebook from Apple Books, published by William Collins. Join me again in our next episode as we delve further into the pioneering women of the 20th century and meet more bloody brilliant women. <laughs> <laughs>